First uh, Peter is a book we've said for our times. It speaks to what it looks like to live as a Christian in our culture, and in a culture that increasingly does not, or even is against, doesn't appreciate, or is it's even hostile against those who follow Christ with their lives. And it can feel like that a lot of uh, a lot of the time. But one thing to note that will show up later on is that Peter, he's not surprised by that at all. That's not something that makes him say, let's start a culture war, or let's just be angry and mad at people who don't share our faith. No, 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 no. He's going to say over and over again, that is an incumbent upon believers. It's, It's imperative in the life of Christians to be kind to those who don't share the same beliefs as they do. And so we're going to see this over and over and over again as we uh, as we you know as we've gone through this letter and for the theme of it, so um, let's read together First Peter chapter one. And I'm going to read verses in chapter four, verses one through eleven. This is God's word to us. It's given to us in love. Let's listen to it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But... They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask now that you would meet us in the teaching of your word and that you would open up to us by your spirit what it is that you intend for us to see, to know, and to learn. And Lord, tonight, whether we come uh, with great faith, with weak faith, with no faith, we pray tonight for two things, that we might see Jesus as believable, that He is intellectually credible, that He makes sense. And yet, O Lord, we pray too for our hearts that we would see Him as beautiful, that He would be existentially satisfying, that He would be one that really does satisfy us. So we pray that You would grant us that grace tonight. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin by asking you all a question. Have you ever had something or an experience that was out on the horizon that you knew about, and all of life seemed to be oriented unto that thing. So something that was out off into the future, and you felt like, my whole life seems to be dictated by that thing. 
Laura and I, my wife, um, we're going to be going in a couple of weeks on a 10-year anniversary trip. We've been married for 10 years, and we're very excited about that trip. And that's been a trip that we've been planning. I think I even mentioned it to you guys. We've been planning this trip forever. It's just like when you have kids, it's impossible to get away. And uh, anyways, Grandma and Grandpa are going to come down, and we're going to be able to go in a couple of weeks on a nice little vacation. It's like the third trip we've taken by ourselves. But let me tell you what. We know that trip is coming. And that trip has governed our lives. I mean, if we, you know, we actually were going to one place, but the hurricanes this summer, Irma and uh, I can't remember the other, Maria, uh, those were the two big ones that came through and just took out where we were going to go, so we had to move. But it's funny, right? I mean, the grandparents are coming in town, so we've got to give instructions to them. So we're writing up stuff about the type of you know, food to give our kids and what time to drop them off at school. And we're also planning out where we want to eat when we get there and the books that we want to bring on the trip with us so that we can read when we're there. It's just going to be great. And just today, Laura asked me, are our passports ready? You know, are they, are they current? We need to get them. And so that's, we, we do have them, by the way. Um, but, we, you know, it's that sort of thing. The point is, is that, you know, there's this far off event that orients, that, that while it's off in the future, it orients us in our present. And I actually think that you guys do this too. You just may not realize it. It's just called your exams. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know, every April, April, every May, rather, and every December, you know there's something on the calendar. And that's governing, that's dictating your life in September. And you, you're reaching into the future, you're pulling it into the present, and you're doing life on the basis of that future event. I mention all this. A, a theme that recurs all over through the book of Peter is that actually to live Christianly in this world is to always be looking at the end of the story. And then as it were, to pull it into the present and to do life on the basis of it. To orient our lives around it. Peter has just said something in verse 7 of this text. It's very, very helpful for us as Christians here today. He has said, the end of all things is at hand or is near. Now, Peter doesn't mean this like you might think if you were to walk into some major city and see somebody with, you know, the, the poster board or the plaster board or the board that, the, that sandwich boards, right? That, you know, it's sort of a doomsday prophet. The end is near, you know, get your life in order. That's the, he's not saying it like that. Rather, what he wants you to understand is, is that there is an unfolding of the redemptive story that God began long ago in the, book of, in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. He made us. Man rebelled. He sent a Redeemer to rescue us from our sin. And that Redeemer, who we know as Jesus, lived, died, rose again from the dead, and then ascended to the Father. So He now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what Peter is saying is, is when that event happened, do you know what happened? We entered into what the Bible calls the last days. The end times, as it were. And it might feel funky because if you've been around the church at all, you hear that language and you think like, whoa, that's really, really scary for me. But the New Testament writers just understood that's where we were in the story. And so when Peter says the end is nigh, it means that we're in it. We're in the last chapter, as it were. We're in the denouement, so to speak, of the story that will be resolved one day. And Peter is saying this, that when that begins to come into your life, amazing things start to happen for the life of the believer. And you get two new things that this text tells us. You get a new why 
for living your life, and you get a new way of living it. So you're going to get a new why, a new purpose, a new why, as it were, in your life. And you're going to get a new way of living it. That's my two points tonight. And we're going to take a look, first of all, at this idea of the new why. And let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at it, particularly in verses 1 through 6. Let's see if we can just walk through this text together. What you see from the very beginning there is that Peter is saying this, that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What is he saying? He's saying, in so much as Christ himself has suffered, that you, you too, you too, because you are in him, that you in the same way, in the same way that Christ has died, while you, may have, you have not died physically, but you have died to the principle of sin in your life. The Apostle Paul in Romans talks about it this way, that sin is no longer your master. You owe it nothing. And what this means is, is that while you might struggle with sin, the presence of sin will be in your life until you die. The power of sin has been snapped in the resurrection of Jesus. And this is profoundly helpful. Because what it means is, is that Peter is telling you that you owe sin nothing, so quit paying it. You may think, I don't have power over the sin in my life. And Peter's going to say, you're wrong. You do. The sin owes you nothing. And that's meant to be profoundly encouraging for those of us who have a certain pet sin struggle in our lives. But notice as well what he says there when he says, arm yourself with this way of thinking or the same way of thinking. Peter understands that what lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian centers around the way that we think. Have you ever thought about that? That to be a Christian is not less than thinking rightly. And if you don't, if you don't conceive of your Christianity that way, your discipleship that way, if you're a follower of his, his, Peter would say, then you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. You see, Christianity really does involve thinking things out, telling yourselves true things about yourself. It's not just showing up at an RUF or reading a Bible or something like that. Though those are important things. But a right way of thinking, Peter is saying. And what is that right way of thinking? It's just what I mentioned. To consider yourself dead to sin. And Peter wants to drive that home and press that further in to your heart. You know, here's what he wants you to also see. Did you catch it right there in verse 2? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He sets that contrast human passions, and the will of God. And what he's saying is, is that you have died to human passions. You don't owe them anything anymore. Instead, now you live your life for God. See if I can draw this out just a little bit. Peter is saying that when you become a Christian, you get a new why. A reason for living. See, here's a great test question for you. If you were to boil down, and it really is a question all of us have to answer. What is your life about? What is your life for? Why do you live? People, philosophers for the ages have asked the question, what is the point in living? And Peter is telling you right here what it is if you are a Christian. It is to live for God's purposes in your life. That's the philosophical question that men for ages have wrestled with. I love what a document put forth over 400 years ago. The question came like this. 
What is man's, ladies, you're included, included, mankind, what is man's chief end? What's the point that we were made for? And the answer to that question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now here's a great question. Is that the way you conceive of Christianity? Maybe you're an outsider tonight, somebody that's considering the claims of Christianity, and maybe that you thought about being a Christian is something like this. It means I kind of tidy up, uh, I quit smoking pot, I quit drinking, I don't have sex as much, I don't have sex at all until I get married. Like that, that you start with ethics. You see what I'm saying? You start with your way of life, your life practices. What Peter is saying, and what the whole sum of the Bible is saying, that what lies at the heart of Christianity, are you ready for this? Is enjoying God. That's what you've been called into if you're a Christian. That your, the, 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 what lies at the very center of your life is to be one that is now called into tapping your joy into the triune God of the universe and delight. In other words, what lies at the very heart of the human experience, which you were made for. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, you were made for enjoyment and to find your joy in God Himself. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what lies at the heart of the Christian teaching about what or why your life is there. Does that make sense? It's profound when you think about it. Because rarely do we hear about it. We hear Christianity is about doing this, or it's having certain experiences. It's not. Those things are wonderful. But what lies at the heart of it is finding a new reason for living, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Great picture. Notice what else happens when Peter says. He says that there is an effect that when you get this new why in your life, something's going to happen. What is it? Well, the people around you who don't get you and understand you will begin to malign you. They will not understand why you have this as the central focus of your life. And they will begin to look at you and ask questions and say, man, he or she is crazy. What is going on with their lives? And I just want to say this. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have become a Christian. Or you're in the process of becoming one here on campus. And you realize the old friends that you used to have no longer want to hang out with you. They no longer call you anymore. You're not getting the text that you once used to have. Or maybe you've become a Christian and the boy that once was interested in you is no longer interested in you. Or the girl that once liked you is no longer interested in you. And Peter is saying that when that happens, that's actually normal in the life of the Christian. The fact that the text is telling us is that that happens right there. And it's really important for us to understand that when we begin to experience this sort of maligning or this sort of exclusion or this sort of ill, you know, um, ill regard from other people around us, it can raise the question in our minds, gosh, is this Christian gospel still true? Right? It may be easy to doubt. And what Peter is saying is, listen, though death is certain, there is something greater than death itself. And that is the promises of the gospel. Did you catch it there in the text? That's what this text is saying when it says that's why the gospel was preached to those who are even dead. 
That's a weird way of saying it, but Peter's point is, is this. He's talking about people who have gone on to die, and when they were living, they accepted it. They received this gospel message, and they now have died. And Peter is saying, just because they've died does not mean that the gospel message is now untrue. That's what he wants you to see. That the gospel promises are true even through death. And that's meant to be a profound hope and comfort for you. Here's the thing that I really want to show or highlight is the idea that when you begin to see this, that when you begin to understand, when you begin to see that this is your great hope, that these are the promises that are yours, this new why that is yours, it begins to spark something in you. It begins to create, as it were, a longing. C.S. Lewis talked about it this way. He, had a, he, he pulled from the German language and had a word that he called the imported in English. We don't have an exact English translation on it, but the German word is Zainzucht. It's this idea of longing. It's this idea of yearning. And it won't go away. I love what Lewis goes on to write. It's story time again. Y'all got it last week. We're going to get it again. Another one of Lewis's stories, uh, The Last Battle. This is a great picture of it. Um, the kids in the, the Narnia Tales are walking to find the great king, Aslan. And no, this is not the same story I shared last week. Different book. Um, but uh, this is what it, how it reads. It's so beautiful. And it taps into this longing that all of us have that whether you're a Christian or not, there's something that we... Well, let me just put it like this. I'll ask a question first. Have you ever experienced something and then it seems to evaporate and you know what you experienced was a taste of what was really true? Um, the birth of a child happened for me, you know, has happened for us. A wedding ceremony. It's usually a moment with great weight. It might be seen out in nature and it, and it fades ever so quickly, but you're like, that was the a longing for the truest representation of the thing that I just experienced. Now, that's the question. Listen to what Lewis writes. It still seemed to be early, and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look round and look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday or vacation when we were very, very small? It would have to be a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that, like the blue on those mountains in our world. And then Lucy said they're different. They have more colors on them. And they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more, oh, I don't know. More like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. More like the real thing. Why share that with you? Peter's saying the end of all things is here. He's promising you a great hope. He's saying you have a new why in your life. And that, when that comes crashing into your life, it really begins to begin to create and to give you a longing to see it realized and fulfilled. But that's not all he says. 
He says when this comes into your life, you begin to actually orient your life differently in the way that you live. And that brings us to the second point. Not only a new why, but a new way. A new way. And it's earmarked especially by love. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 11. He says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another, and so on and so forth. What he is getting at here is that when we are living with the end in mind, we get new motivation for living in new ways. In other words, the gospel so grips us that we begin to get over ourselves. That's a key phrase. To get over ourselves and to give our lives away for others. That's a great challenge, isn't it? Because all of us think that the universe revolves around who? Me. I mean, every single one of us in this room thinks the most important person in the world is me. Not Ryan, you, whoever you are. I love what Martin Luther, this great reformer who we celebrate the Reformation this week, he said this, that the heart is intrinsically in curvatus se. It's curved in on itself. And I love that language. The heart just goes, and what I want is just me, right? That's what it's saying. And because of that, it's not natural. We need a new principle coming in in our lives. We're incredibly selfish people. But Peter is saying, since the end is near, since we live with this new great hope, since we live with this new great why, life is is to be lived differently in light of it. Four things that you caught there. Verse 7, a sobriety for prayer. Sobriety for prayer. Did you see it? He says, above all, excuse me, verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The idea of one of the marks now is that we're clear-headed, we're right-thinking, we're, we're self-controlled in our thinking such that we may be able to pray rightly. Why? Because prayer is the very baseline, it is the very lifeline of our relationship with God and our go-between as we think and we, and we are able to serve our brothers and sisters. You see, Peter is talking about how God's people live in love together. And if you don't understand the power and the point and the principle of prayer, you will not be able to live out your calling very faithfully. That's what he's getting at. Secondly, not only sobriety for prayer, but you caught it in verse 8, an earnest love. Did you catch it? Above all, we're going to come back to that phrase, keep loving one another earnestly. What he is saying is, is this, that the highest mark above everything else, your life, if this new why has come crashing into your life, is to be marked above all by the way that you demonstrate earnest love, earnest love to your brothers and sisters. Why is the idea of earnest love so important? Because don't we love for ulterior motives sometimes? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So-and-so's in my life, I'll be kind to them because what? I'll get something else out of it. We can all fess up. We actually use people like that. It's sad. It should not be. And there's hope for those of us that do. But to love earnestly from the sincere heart is to love people without getting anything from it. Without getting anything out of it. And Peter is saying to love like that lies at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life. I love that picture there. This idea of earnest love. It's not primarily a feeling, but it is a commitment to do good to them. Thirdly, genuine hospitality in verse 9. 
The picture here is is of welcoming and opening your space, your life, your home, your apartment for people to come find rest for their souls. Great question for you as college students. When's the last time you just opened up your place for people to have a space to rest? You might think, man, I live in a dorm room. Well, listen, I live in a a house with eight other dudes. How in the world can it be hospitable? Well, don't you know what it's like to just to come over to a friend's couch and to just crash? And to be able to open up your heart to them in conversation, to say, my day has sucked, my day has been great, I just need somebody to talk to. That's the picture of hospitality. And you as college students can do it. You don't have to wait till you get my age to practice hospitality, to be a welcoming presence on this campus for people who do share your same beliefs and for people who don't. And my hope is is that RUF, that this community on campus, will be known as one of the most welcoming communities on campus. I want you to know that in RUF, we labor hard to give you space to do business with God either in your questions or your doubts, your pain and your sorrows, that we want to be that sort of community. And I just say this, come join us. Come join us. Come be a part of being a welcoming presence on this this community. That's what we hope for. Fourthly and lastly, using your gifts. Did you catch it there in verses 10 and 11? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What in the world is he talking about? Peter is saying this, that when you become a Christian, you know something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And He pours out what we call spiritual gifts in the life of the believer. And those gifts are quite varied. You can learn more about them in the book of 1 Corinthians. You can read a list in Ephesians. You can read a list in Romans. And the idea is that these are gifts given to God's people for the building up of the people on the whole. And here's what's amazing. He just, he, just simple, he just simply qualifies them in two ways. There are speaking gifts in verse 11, and then there are serving gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And I just want to say this, that when you, when you begin to see yourself in these broad categories of speaking and serving, word and deed, that really, people really are built up. Here, here's, here's something I, I can encourage you with. I have seen many of you Many of you in this very room labor hard behind the scenes. You serve with your time. Some of you serve in the ministry of RUF and you give your life away for students. And, and here's what's happening. Like, people meet Jesus because of it. The people know Christ because of the way that you give your life away in His cause and his, for His purposes. And I've watched others of you who have really good gifts of speaking and encouragement just breathe life into people who needed, a, who needed a word, who needed life, because life was in the pits for you. And Peter is saying this, that when you begin to have that why come crashing into your life, that this begins to flesh itself out in it. What am I getting at in this idea of the new way? The point is very, very simple, y'all. I want you to understand that when the gospel comes crashing home in your life, it begins to really change you, which leads us to a question. If you're somebody who follows Jesus, 
Has it? Has it? It's a challenge for you. Is your life marked by these things? See, here's another way of framing it. If Jesus were to leave your life altogether, would your life look any differently? You see? You see what I'm talking about? You see, because Jesus is actually in your life if you are a Christian. He is saying that your life will actually look different. That the values that you orient your life around, the way that you treat one another, especially those that are of the household of faith, you will love them and give yourself away for them, is what he is, he is saying. I think it's very, very important because it's, it's just so critical to understand that when the gospel does come crashing home, it does begin to change you. Not immediately, dear friends. No, not immediately. But certainly. And over time. And so it's helpful for us to be just ever so reminded of that. Well, I want to begin to close. Where do we find the power to actually live with the end in mind? I mean, frankly, about enduring suffering. Did you not catch that? If need be in this life. That presupposes that there will be sorrows and busted dreams and saying a thousand times over, I would never, ever, ever do that again. That's not expect how... I expected my life to work out. Some of y'all are experiencing that so acutely right now, this very day. You are saying to God, this is not how I dreamed my life would be. And so in the midst of that sadness, in the midst of that sorrow, how in the world can we begin to live a life like this? Well, here's what I want you to see. Here's where I want you to find bread for the journey. Fuel to be able to keep going on. There is one place and one place only. It's in the Gospel itself. The promise of the good news. Namely, that what God begins, He always finishes. And so Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 will say, will say that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's meant to be profoundly encouraging for you if you're wrestling with who you are tonight. This is why the Gospel is needed. Let me put a finer point on it. You know, Jesus too had an end. He had an end in mind too. He was living His life for something. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, by putting it this way, that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that? For the joy. For the joy that was set before Him. For the joy. And what was His joy? After all, He saw it as He was being bloodied. After all, He saw it as He was, being, as he was breathing His last. And do you know what that joy was? It was rescuing you. It was giving His life away so that you might, whoa, have life. Any way we can fix that, Patrick? Man, what a great moment right there, huh? There it is, that's fine. That's fine, you can leave them all up. Here's why it's so important. Bringing you to Him was His joy. Bringing you to Him was His joy because it brought much glory to Jesus because it brings much glory to the Father, who this is all about. And friends, to the degree that you see Jesus being the one who does all this for you, even through His own death and in spite of all your failures and sin, you begin to have power 
to live a life faithfully to him in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have given yourself for us, that you care for sinners, and that you love us. Lord, we pray that you would see, help us to see that the end really is here in the sense that we live in the last story in this great hope. And we pray that you would help us tonight to be able to apprehend that and see it more and more. And we lift this all up in Jesus' name. Amen.